19. Page 1632, if you're going to follow along in the Pew Bible in front of you. Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. I uh, shortened the passage for this morning. So we'll pick up verse 45 next week. We'll read just through verse 44 today. As we come to God, to his holy word, we understand that he must speak to give us life. It must be his words and his truth. So let us say a quick prayer as we come before the word of God this morning. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For your son's sake, amen. Luke 19, verse 41, God's holy word. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. I had a nice comment in the last couple of weeks. saying uh, Someone was saying to me how they appreciated how I, I often uh, weave literary themes and references into my preaching. And uh, last week, of course, we had Nathan Voss here with us and speaking of the Chronicles of Narnia and his introduction, bringing some of that as well. So this week, I give you the literary triumph of Goldilocks, since that is a favorite story in our house right now. Goldilocks ventures into the house of three bears, and she avails herself of all that she wants there, the best food, the best bed. She wakes up after napping in the most comfortable bed. She wakes up to three angry bears. And of course, the the lesson, the moral of the story, cautionary tale for children, you cannot live as if everything you see belongs to you. But if we take a step back and and think about what is it that, that Goldilocks knew? When she went into that house, she knew it wasn't her house. But then as she wakes up and realizes that since she has lived as if everything in there was her own, she was in danger. There are consequences to living in this kind of way. You see, she went into that house with a certain knowledge, but she left with an understanding of that knowledge that went deeper than she had known previously. Scottish pastor, theologian, and author George MacDonald who is actually one of the biggest influences on C.S. Lewis, writes this. He says, Everything in the world is more or less misunderstood at first. 
We have to learn what it is and come at length to see that it must be so, that it could not be otherwise. That, that, that's what it means to know that something is true, to know that all the, the claims that would compete with that truth, they are not true. They are false. And when it comes to the Gospels that we read, all of them are making a case for Jesus, that he is the way and the truth and the life that he is the only way to salvation, and that all other competing claims are not true. That's what it means to know and to understand the truth of Jesus. This is the case that the Gospels make for us. He is not one truth among many. He is not some happy addition to the library of truth, but rather he is the truth. There are no others besides him. Here's our life-transforming reality As we think about this passage, uh, this brief passage before us today, though God is compassionate towards sinners, there is still a coming judgment for those who who do not truly know the reality of Jesus and his gospel. Therefore, we must respond with obedience to the truth by believing in the one God sent for us. We must respond to the truth by believing in the one whom God has sent for us. Three ideas that will kind of weave in and out throughout the sermon this morning. Compassion, knowledge, and coming judgment. Compassion, knowledge, and coming judgment. What we see is there are these two, as just as we saw a couple weeks ago, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. We saw his meekness and his majesty. Here we see compassion towards sinners, but also coming judgment. And the hinge point of that is knowledge of the truth. Do you truly know the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ? So let us think together. First, we'll think about compassion, God's compassion towards sinners. In in this passage, and especially in the next passage, there are many references and allusions to the prophets Jesus is the one in whom the voice of all of the Old Testament prophets are summed up. And really, the the, the voice of the the prophets, the threads woven throughout, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of the, the major and minor prophets, is mercy and wrath. God is wrathful towards sin, but he delights to show mercy. And we see both of those in this passage before us. Oftentimes in the the prophets, you get a lot more of that wrath and that coming judgment than you do of the mercy of a friend whose father had walked away from the church for many years and has slowly been been making his way back and more and more adopting, once again, the Christian faith, becoming his own. He finally started reading the Bible for himself again, and he didn't know where to start. It had been many years since he had done this, so He decided to read the book of Jeremiah because, of course, it's got that nice, warm, and fuzzy verse right in the middle there. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. And uh, he didn't realize that uh, surrounding that verse was really a very large and long book about God's judgment upon sin. And so my friend asked his dad, how are you liking uh, reading the Bible again? And what are you reading? He said, I'm reading Jeremiah. And God is very, very angry with the sin of his people. Mercy and wrath woven throughout uh, the prophets. God is a God who does not clear the guilty. He does not wink at sin. But compassion, compassion towards sinners. Jesus 
makes his way towards Jerusalem in verse 41, and he weeps over Jerusalem. Now let's consider what is happening. Jesus is the God-man. He, he knows what's going to happen to him. He perfectly understands the path that lies before him, the suffering at the hands of sinners. He knows that the cross is the end of his road. And yet here he is weeping as he approaches Jerusalem, filled with compassion for the people of the city, these people who will betray him, these people who will turn against him and reject him. And Jerusalem also is really the, the, the center of the worshiping life of Israel, the center of the leadership of Israel, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the scribes. And these are the groups that symbolize the deepest earthly opposition to Jesus. They've been scheming, thinking of ways to squash his movement, thinking of ways to get rid of him and sweep him out of the public eye. And, and yet he weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem. Fascinating reality as we think about what Jesus is doing. He's really considering the big picture of his mission. Why is it that he was sent to earth? We've just seen that passage. Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. He was sent to earth for that reason. To seek and to save sinners. And so he considers this mission, why he was sent, why he was doing uh, all of the things that, that he has done. Coming to earth, and being a righteous savior. He realizes that there are people who reject him. He has known all along that people would reject him. But even as he considers this relative to Jerusalem, he weeps because he is filled with compassion for God's people. You see in verse 42, he says, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The people of Israel wanted peace. They desired peace, but as we've been seeing, as the Gospel of Luke has unfolded, it, it's not the proper kind of peace. They're expecting an earthly peace. They're expecting that Messiah will come and wipe out the Roman Empire and set up for them an earthly kingdom where their competitors will be no more. They have missed this peace that Jesus brings. Remember at the beginning of the Gospel, the angels are in the night sky and they're singing praise to God and they're saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth peace on earth but then last week if you or two weeks ago we remember Jesus the triumphal entry into Jerusalem what did they say people are speaking really beyond their understanding but they say glory to God and peace in heaven because what the gospel of Luke has shown us is that the only way to have peace on earth is to be reconciled to the God of heaven that is true peace that is eternal peace that goes beyond the the unreasonable expectations of an earthly peace while the curse of sin still permeates through this world we look at this world look at the realities of this world and we see as long as sin is present True and lasting peace will not happen. It will not exist. And Jesus teaches us in this gospel, the only way to have peace on earth is to be among those who are reconciled to the God of heaven. If you are reconciled to God, then you have peace. He has moved to compassion towards uh, these people in Jerusalem, these people who will reject him. He resembles in this way Jeremiah. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. 
Jeremiah chapter 9, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. It's not only the voice of Jeremiah, it is the voice of Ezekiel. Ezekiel teaches us very important truths that we understand, that God is filled with compassion towards sinners. God is filled with compassion towards sinners. Ezekiel 18, verse 23, says this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, but rather that he should turn from his way and live? In this passage, we we learn something about God. In a general sense, we learn that he is filled with compassion towards sinners, That within his character, within the character of God, there is a desire to forgive sin. His mercy is as high as the heavens. God delights to show mercy. And that people turn from their wicked ways and live the way that they are intended to live. This is why he sent his son to save from sin. To create a new people united in the life that Jesus gives. So Jesus, in this way, is... He's the literal embodiment of the compassion of God, of God's move towards sinners to forgive them and to restore their life. Jesus shows not only his divinity, but also his humanity. He's filled with solidarity towards those whom he knows are facing a coming judgment. He considers the coming judgment of God for Jerusalem and he weeps. In this way, he shows us his humanity. Hopefully, all of us, when we consider the calamities of this world, this past week, we see this hurricane kind of uh, gain momentum and and come in onto the shore and take out multiple towns, and so many people's lives are uprooted and turned upside down. Uh, We're filled with compassion for these people. We're filled with sadness and grief over what they're going through. Why? Because these are people created by God. God especially created them. They're image bearers of God, and We are image bearers of God as well. So there's this solidarity to the human condition and uh, the hard times, the hardships that people go through, not only on the large scale of things like this past week and the multiple hurricanes that we've seen in recent years, but in families who go through hard times and hardships, they suffer. You feel solidarity if you reflect upon the fact that they're image bearers of God, just as we are image bearers of God as well. So Jesus shows us the character of God, this compassion towards sinners. He weeps over Jerusalem. He shows us his humanity, solidarity, identifying with human suffering. And perhaps you say, well, how can Jesus be filled with compassion if he knows, if God is sovereign and he knows that many people in Jerusalem will not turn to him? They ultimately will not be saved and yet Jesus has this this act of compassion. In some sense, we need to understand, recognize that our finite minds are not going to be able to furnish a proper or complete answer. We'll be able to furnish a proper answer, but a complete answer for the infinite. Our finite minds cannot comprehend an infinite God. But we can say in a general sense that even though God knows the end from the beginning, even though God has appointed the exact number who will believe in Jesus Christ and be saved from their sin, yet at the same time, generally speaking, God is filled with compassion for sinners. 
and that God does not delight in the judgment of the wicked. This is why we speak of the gospel being offered to the whole world. And while it is true that only those appointed to eternal life believe, yet it is also true that the compassion of the God-man can move him to tears as he considers the end of unrepentant sinners. Hear the voice of another prophet, the voice of Isaiah, who says, this is the appointed time, this is the day of salvation. Seek God while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is what the ministry of the Apostle Paul was all about, calling people to faith. We implore men, he says, to be reconciled to God. Call upon him while he is near, for he is a God who is gracious and full of compassion. And yet at the same time, we see that he is a God who speaks of coming judgment. He says it in this passage relative to Jerusalem. Jerusalem will, on the large scale, reject the Messiah. They have rejected him. Wheels are set in motion. Jesus knows that their time has come. There is coming judgment. So Jesus speaks here as a prophet, not necessarily alluding to any particular prophet. Many prophets spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus speaks of another destruction of Jerusalem that was to happen in 70 AD, about a generation after the life of Jesus. The temple will be wiped out. Not one stone will be left upon another. This is part of the coming judgment of God upon the people of Israel for their rejection of the Messiah. He is a God of compassion, and yet judgment comes. Ferocious towards sin, infinitely holy. He will by no means clear the guilty. He does not wink at sin. He is a just God. Verse 44 tells us the reason why this destruction is coming. Jesus says, Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That word for recognize is really just know. You did not know that God was visiting you in the person of Jesus Christ. That is, you failed to understand that your Redeemer had come. Incomplete knowledge, improper knowledge, can be the most dangerous thing in the world. There was a sense in which they understood things about Jesus. There was a sense in which they understood the teaching of Jesus and saw the miracles and the signs of Jesus, but they did not understand it to the point of where they understood the call of Jesus. Come to me. Give yourself to me. Trust in me. Believe in me. That's what it means to know and to fully know who Jesus is and his truth. In verse 42, Jesus highlights again Knowledge. If only you had known. If only you had known what would bring peace. But now it is hidden. This idea of, of knowledge, the truth, is woven all throughout the Gospels. As Jesus interacts with, with people who are challenging him, oftentimes the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, they'll hear the response of Jesus, they'll hear the teaching of Jesus, but then what happens is they want to act as, as if they are sovereign over the teaching of Jesus and they're going to decide whether or not it's true, whether or not it's right for them. This, was, this is a problem that goes all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve considering the commandments of God and saying, well, maybe we are above those commandments. And so you hear people respond to Jesus by saying things like, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus shows them the the power of the law to go straight to the heart and, and to remind them that if they are not loving everyone, 
whom God brings into their life as their neighbor, then they are not loving perfectly. And they say, well, really, who is my neighbor? The Pharisees would go to great lengths to define who fit into that category of neighbor so that category would shrink and shrink. Jesus speaks of spiritual truth to Nicodemus. You must be born again to be reconciled to God. Nicodemus becomes obtuse in his response. Can a man go back into his mother's womb? How can he be born again? When the content of Jesus' preaching was not the problem, people would fall back on just questioning where he was coming from. By whose authority do you teach these things? It wasn't a challenge as to the specific truths he was saying. They would say, well, how do we know? Where did you even come from? Who is it that has sent you? Willful ignorance. Willful ignorance. And the same problem seeps through our world today. Perhaps it is even worse today. People... Many people know about Jesus. They know things about his story. They know the contours of what it is that he came to do. He's a good man. He died on the cross. And, uh, you know, they know some of these facts about him. But they think that if Jesus and his message really were true, there would be some kind of experience or innate feeling that would make it absolutely beyond any shadow of a doubt that it is true. Let God come to me and reveal himself to me, people will say. Those kinds of things, even in response to hearing the words of the gospel. Return to the words of George MacDonald. We considered something that he said in the beginning of today's sermon. And he talks about people who consider the truth of Jesus, the message of Jesus. And do they really know what it is that Jesus says? Do they understand it in the proper sense? He says this, for the sake of knowing, they, that is those who are acting as sovereign over the teaching of Jesus, they postpone that which alone can enable them to know and substitute for the true understanding which lies beyond a false persuasion that they already understand. In other words, people say, oh yeah, I know, I know about Jesus. I know what he did. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. Uh, Christians generally inflate what he said and inflate his message. He's really one truth among many. MacDonald goes, goes on to say, They will not act upon, that is, uh, what is their highest privilege, that of obeying the Son of God. So here's the question. Do you have a knowledge of the truth that compels you to act upon the words of Jesus? To act upon the words of Jesus. That is ultimately doing the will of God, which is, in the Gospel of John, remember, Jesus says to us, what the will of God is. He says, this is the will of my Father that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Jesus says that you trust in me, that you trust in me and my words and the message that I bear, that you cannot save yourself, that you cannot find your way to God without me. Believe in me and trust in me. People would say, well, by what authority can we know that what Jesus said is true? People today say the same thing. He's one opinion among many, one road among many. But they show the brokenness of their sinful heart, the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Because I live, you also will live. See, on the last day, there will be many who, like in Israel in Jesus' day, are made to endure the just judgment of God. 
Even though they knew basic contours of the Jesus story, even though they knew bits and pieces about who he was, they may have known things, but they did not understand it. And they did not obey the truth of Jesus' message because they did not understand the call of Jesus attached to the idea of the truth. The book of 1 Peter speaks of this, says that obedience to the truth is what cleanses your hearts. Peter's not saying you're saved by your works. Peter's not saying that because of your obedience to the Ten Commandments, you're reconciled to God. He's saying obedience to the truth is considering the message and the call of Christ and saying, stop trusting in yourself. Leave that all to the side. Come to Jesus. It's the sovereign call of a sovereign God to trust in him and to trust in his work. So biblical saving faith is. It's not only knowing the story of Jesus, it's not only believing or thinking that they are true, but it is a wholehearted trust in the Savior. That's why in the Gospel of, uh, or the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, the Apostle Paul can say, I work and I labor to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith, because the faithful are those who obey the call of the Gospel to trust in Jesus. To act upon the truth of who he claimed to be. To understand and to know that there are no other ways to God. That's what it means to obey. This morning, I was just reading the book of Colossians. And so, I had to print it off. It's not in my, my notes here. Colossians 1, where the Apostle Paul is speaking of this. He says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints... Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And then he says this, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul's point is this, when the Christians in Colossians understood the word of the gospel They were bearing fruit because they were brought into the life of Jesus Christ. They submitted themselves to the call of the gospel and entrusted themselves to him. That is true, life-transforming knowledge. That's what it means to obey, to know the truth. As we close this morning, think about one more interaction of Jesus and his interaction with Pilate in the Gospel of John. We get the most details of Jesus' uh, conversation with Pilate in that Gospel. And Pilate is, is saying, are, are you a king? Are you really a king? And that's really his main, his main concern, that Jesus is sort of consumed with the will to power. Right? He wants to be a political leader. He's trying to, to stir up a revolution. Jesus keeps resisting this line of questioning. And he says this, I have come to do this, to bear witness to the truth. The most important thing you can know in this life is the truth, the truth of Jesus Christ, who says, I am the truth. He says, I have come to bear witness to the truth. And then he says this, very fascinating statement. He says, those who are on the side of truth, listen to me. Those who are on the side of truth, listen to me. In other words, they heed my call. They understand and they know my truth, not, not in, the, in, in something that stays outside of them and doesn't change their life. They know my truth in the sense that they come to me and they trust in me and they trust my work.
and their lives are changed and transformed. Without truth, without the truth of Jesus, without obeying the will of God by believing in Jesus, it will be judgment and wrath for sin, just like it was for the people of Jerusalem who were judged for rejecting the Messiah. God is a compassionate and a saving God. He delights to show mercy. His mercy is as high as the heavens. He is also a God of judgment. He is a just God of wrath. The hinge point, how the compassion of God becomes saving mercy in Jesus Christ, the hinge point is what you do with the truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you did not know. You did not understand. You did not recognize the time of God's visitation. Do you know? Do you understand? Do you recognize God's visitation to earth in Jesus Christ and how he calls us to trust in him? God says, I have no desire, I have no delight in the judgment of the wicked, but rather that he turn from his wicked ways and live. Jesus says, this is the will of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Jesus says, those who are on the side of truth, listen to me. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word, for your truth. We pray that you would speak to us through these words, through your holy and inspired word, that you would teach us the depth of the truth of Jesus Christ. You would apply these words to our hearts. That you would change us and transform us. Father, may we be a people who live according to your will in this world, who live loving you with heart and soul and mind and strength, loving our neighbor as ourselves, people who suffer for you, who live for your glory, and who live laying down their life, following their Lord on the path to your eternal city. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.